It's uh, my sincere pleasure to uh, introduce Don Farmer uh, today. Thanks, Don, um, for, uh, for coming. Just to, I'm actually going to start slightly personal, actually. So I, I don't usually talk about it, but I got into ecology via artificial life. Right? When I was about 14, there was some coverage of it um, in the news, and there was a nice uh, documentary and a, and a book called Artificial Life. And, and that's kind of really what whet my appetite, something about this idea of sort of interacting agents and the, and the complexity of those interactions. And even if the rules were simple, you could get much more interesting complex behaviours emerging at a larger scale. And of course, as we heard earlier, often the rules probably aren't simple, so presumably that makes that concept of emergence all the more difficult. And so, and one of the, and, and we're still really just scratching the surface of this idea of complexity and emergence. It's a very, very difficult thing to think about. It's really quite qualitatively different, I think, to, to a lot of the, the science that we've done as human beings up to now. And one of the people that has scratched that surface uh, more deeply than, than most would be, would be Doyne. Um, so he's, um, for a long time now, has been deeply interested in, in all of these topics of uh, nonlinear complex dynamics, chaos theory, uh, complexity. Um, but, uh, and so he's, he's someone that's, that, that's thought about that a lot based on his background in physics. He's been to some amazing places, spent his life in places like Los Alamos, the famous Santa Fe Institute, which when I was 14 was, you know, the, that, that was the place. I used to imagine what it would be like at, at the Santa Fe Institute, and, and there he was. Um, uh, I'm sure it was amazing. But, but as if that wasn't enough, uh, he's also uh, been an entrepreneur, uh, forming his own company and using uh, his methods to try to predict... Um, aspects of the financial market. Um, he started up uh, a self-funding institute um, to try to uh, pay for uh, this kind of science in a way that was more independent of research councils. Um, he's founded something called the Italia Institute, an independent public policy institute in Santa Fe. And then more recently, he's moved to uh, Oxford University, although, uh, where he now um, co-directs the Oxford Martin Programme on Complexity. And so uh, it's hard to imagine someone that would be more uh, suited to uh, uh, speak to us today at Eco Squared. So, Don, again, thanks very much for coming. Well, thanks for a very generous introduction. Um, this is a topic that's really dear to my heart. Oh, and how do I get my talk up here? Somebody could help me do that. Um, so I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll stand over here and let you take care of that because I can't do two things at the same time. Um, so it's a pleasure to, to be here and, and to be giving this talk um, because, as I said, when I, I, I came to do this, well, first let me give the outline. So I'm going to talk about analogies, the use of the analogies from ecology to try and make those not just analogies, but actually turn it into a quantitative theory that can be used to do useful things about problems like financial monitoring and regulation. Um, the main point of the talk that I want to get across is that um, the intellectual framework from ecology can be usefully imported into economics to give understanding of essential dynamics underlying financial crises. Um, so I'm hoping to try and convince you of that, but to make it clear what I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the kind of interactions of humans with the biological environment that, say, Michelle Leroux talked about earlier today. I'm very interested in that. Actually, I'm actively trying to work on that, but that's not what I'm talking about today. Um, though I think it's worth, it, I think it's also true, though, that if we brought the theory in economics closer in its conceptual view to ecology, a lot of the problems that happen when you have interactions between economists and biologists in this camp would, would be much easier to resolve. 
Um, I'm also not going to talk about analogies to ecology in the real economy and say in input-output networks. My collaborator, um, Francesco Caravelli, who is there, we'll be talking about that tomorrow if anybody's interested in that. That does actually relate more directly to this first topic. Um, now, let me just say that, that the material I'm going to cover today is substantially covered by in a, paper, my, a very old paper now, Market Force Ecology and Evolution, uh, that appeared in the Journal of Industrial and Corporate Change. Now, it's a bit of a strange place for a paper on finance to appear. The reason for that is because I wrote this paper really starting about 95. I posted it on the web in 98. The paper represented my view of, of how markets work. After noticing the dichotomy between the academic literature that I was actively reading at the time and my conversations with traders and the way traders viewed the world and the, the, the vast difference. So I tried to make a theory that was more like what traders said and did. I was influenced, for example, by George Soros's book, The Alchemy of Finance, not so much by his ideas about uh, reflexivity as rather just the view that he gives there. He gives a diary of his trading over a year's period of time, and you see that what he had was a view of who the main players in the market were, how they affected each other. He made contingencies of if this guy does this, then the treasury will react this way and prices will go that way. So he thought he was thinking about, he wouldn't quite say it this way, the ecology of the, of the market. And I found over and over again that, that, that traders tend to look at the market that way. There's a uh, somewhat more modern version of, of the story in this um, paper that was a driver review for the Foresight Committee on the Study of Future of Community computer trading. Jean-Pierre, I have a feeling, was one of the ones who invited me to be involved in that. Preparing this talk made me realize I actually need to write an updated version that takes into account all the stuff I've learned that's longer and more in more depth than this one. So that's what I'm trying to give a preview of in this talk. Um, now, I just want to give a little background. There's already been a lot of talk about efficiency. I want to just remind everybody in the room, because we have a lot of non-economists, that um, what that means. There's, first of all, there's two forms of efficiency. One of them is informational. It's not possible to consistently make excess returns or stronger version, there's no risk-free arbitrage. Um, so you can say this in various ways, but, but it has to do about with the ability of agents in the market to make big profits uh, and in its strong form or in this form, it's, it basically says you shouldn't be able to do that. Now, the other one is allocative efficiency, that is, utilities maximize, at least in some sense, which is much more about uh, what's good for the world. It's about social welfare. And under perfect rationality, complete markets, equilibrium, long list of you know, several assumptions, you can show that markets will be efficient in both these senses. But as soon as you start chipping away at the assumptions, these things are no longer uh, moving in lockstep, and you can have markets that might be quite informationally efficient that wouldn't be allocatively efficient. Now, I should say that this is kind of the um, uh, disease that got me into this whole business. Um, I re specifically remember uh, driving on the Mass Parkway with my, at the time, brother-in-law, Cookie Gibb, who was an investment banker, Harvard MBA, working at First Boston. So he's a trader. 
And he told me about the efficient market hypothesis, which I'd never heard of. I remember Bert Malkiel and the random walk and so on. And I said, that's got to be impossible. And uh, that what got the bee in my bonnet, actually, to go the whole direction I did, because I, I like challenges. Um, um, now, let me just go on from there. I'll follow up on that a little bit. Because I'm going to argue that market ecology springs out of, of uh, 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 the deviations from efficiency, it, it, works, it helps to begin by thinking about the kind of intuitive arguments people were using in the old days. This is a statement by Paul Kuttner from 1964 that's quoted in Eugene Fama's review on efficiency, very famous review uh, from 1970. And um, so he says, if any substantial group of buyers thought prices were too low, their buying would force up prices. Reverse would be true for sellers. Only price changes would occur those that result from new information. New information, almost by definition, should be non-random, or should, or should be random, and so um, stock prices should be random. Now, um, and so there, just to recapitulate the argument, you start by imagining a real economy that has a financial system, people are borrowing money, but there's no arbitrageurs around, you would expect things to be pretty inefficient. But somehow the arbitrageurs come in and they start making bets on things. And under the sort of argument that Kuttner says, that should make all these inefficiencies go away. Um, well, does it or can it? There's a little catch there, which, which I think Friedman originally noted, and it was amplified in a paper by Grossman Stiglitz in about 1981. And it said market efficiency requires arbitrageurs, from the argument by Kuttner, but if there's no way to make profits, what are the arbitrageurs are going to... I mean, after all, that's what's motivating them. They should all just go home. So there must be some residual profits there for those guys to make. And empirically, and I can say this from personal experience, people on Wall Street uh, or, or the city make much bigger salaries than other people doing comparable jobs. I mean, in my case, I made about an average of 30 times as much per year while I worked at a prediction company as I did uh, before or after. Um, and by the way, Prediction Company was a company that we started, and I'll say a little more about that in a moment. Um, so it was, there, there's a lot of money to be made in financial markets. Uh, I don't think that surprises anything, anybody. Um, uh, and it's interesting to go back and look at the history of this. The early statements by people like Eugene Fama were quite strong. You can't do this, period. In fact, when Prediction Company was starting up, we actually got substantial press, which was very useful because we were trying to attract a partner because we recognized we didn't know much about um, financial markets. So we, wanted, we said, we're scientists. We want to team up with bankers. And so we were looking for partners. We got some press. And one of the popular science magazines had an article about us where they called Eugene Fama and asked him, well, what are the odds these guys will succeed? He said, the odds are not zero, but they are very, very low. And um, so why did he even give us a non-zero probability? Because there's a millionth monkey hypothesis that, well, of course, if you have enough monkeys and, and they can type, even if it's random, they will eventually type you know, a sentence of Shakespeare. And so that was, I think, the sense in which he was willing to give us a non-zero chance. The thinking has shifted on that now. I think the empirical evidence is sufficiently strong uh, from places like Renaissance, uh, we add to that. Several, many other companies added that. I mean, Prediction Company now has a sharp ratio of three. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Over a 15 or 20 year period now. 
So um, that, the odds that that would happen from a million monkeys are zero. So, um, so I think we, we actually accomplished that challenge. But the way I would look at this, I have to say there were moments when I would say three or four years into doing this where I thought maybe Fama was right. Markets are pretty darn efficient. Don't kid yourself. It's not easy to make money in markets. So the way as a physicist I would say this, that they're informationally efficient at first order, but necessarily inefficient following the Friedman paradox at second order. And it's that second order inefficiency that I'm going to talk about here and investigate its consequences. So now, suppose you're interested in market failures, like the recent financial crisis we had. How do you go about doing that? So the neoclassical approach would be you take the, the perfect theory that I mentioned a bit ago, and you'd start relaxing assumptions. You'd say, well, we've got institutional constraints. Some banks can do this, other banks can't. We have incomplete markets. You can't hedge all risks. Um, different people have different information. And so you do put in some kind of specialization in the problem. You put structure into it. And, but then you operate otherwise in the same framework as before. The market ecology approach, I will argue, you acknowledge those deviations from efficiency at the beginning and investigate their consequences in a much more direct manner. Um, and a key to this is specialization. An idea that in economics goes all the way back to Adam Smith's 70, 1776 treatise and the famous description of the pen factory, where if you recall, he, he observed that when, in making pens, one person would make the shaft, another person would sharpen the pen, another person would make the cap, somebody else would, would attach the cap to the shaft. And so there was specialization even in such a basic thing as making a pen. And it's a core concept in ecology. After all, ecology is all about different organisms that do very different things and their interactions with each other and the whole that they form all acting as specialists, or perhaps some of them, as Stefano said earlier, act as generalists, but um, they, uh, uh, the, the, difference, the differences between those organisms are essential in thinking about ecology from the, from the, the outset. Um, this is in contrast to rationality. Rationality, if, if once an agent's rational, uh, in the typical model at least, they can sort of do everything for free. You know, they can be good at this and they can be good at that. And, and unless you build in restrictions like institutional constraints or information asymmetries, they can do everything else by assumption. Um, so it's a little bit, I think, you know, one needs to think back to why specialization occurs, why it is that, you know, we don't have animals that are really good at swimming and really good at flying and can run fast and think really well and have a culture and do everything at once. Um, um, another thing that deserves comment is in, in most uh, standard economic models, like standard macro models, there's a representative agent who, say, one agent will represent all the diverse agents in the economy, and there's now a growing literature on nonlinear systems. I mean, that works fine when you have a linear system. It can lead to dramatically wrong answers when you have a nonlinear system. Um, now, okay, what do I mean by the market ecology hypothesis? That agents follow strategies that are specialized to exploit niches, corresponding inefficiencies generated by the activity of other agents. Um, and just to comment, um, again, the cost, there's a cost-benefit uh, a prediction company that uh, I discovered, um, and that there are increasing returns to specialization. Every... Um, 
you know, every, every year we would think, what are we going to do next year? And we put all our ideas on the board, and we'd have all these great ideas for doing cool stuff, but in the end, the only things we could ever choose were things that were pretty close to what we were doing already. Why? Because the cost to get there was way lower than the cost of doing these other things. If we stayed close to something that used the expertise that we already had, we could quickly construct a plan to you know, produce something within a quarter or two, which is what we needed to do. And by the way, I wanted to make a side comment, so I'm going to go back a slide, uh, concerning Torsten's talk. And, and I meant to say, I mean, I thank the Torsten that my, what I'm presenting here is in the same uh, philosophical spirit. I agree on most things. Um, uh, Torsten was finding that in, in his models, everybody's converging to one strategy. I'll, I think that's a very interesting result. I have other models where we see the same thing happening, but empirically, that's not how it is. I was really struck when I, you know, I bought my suit to go to Wall Street, start knocking on the door of all these firms, and um, I visited during the course of 1991-92 at least 20 different Wall Street firms, and I was really struck that they were all different. The cultures are different. The way they go about making money is different. They are all specialized and highly diverse. It's not that you can't find pairs or you know, triples of firms that are very similar to each other, but I was struck by the diversity, and I'm still puzzled. I think it's actually one of the open questions I'll come back to later. Why is there so much diversity? Okay, back to my hypothesis here. I'm going to talk about how we can organize agents into a market food web that specifies who profits from whom, how the market food web evolves with time and the forces that make that happen, um, how the evolution of new strategies can unbalance that food web and those imbalances can drive market crises. So um, let me just state the analogy with biology. This is mainly so that if you're a biologist, you can just think about what we're doing here. I'm not arguing in any sense that biology, biological ecologies are just like market ecologies. I'm just arguing that some of the conceptual tools from biology can be imported, and when you listen to me talk, it may help to think about the following mapping in which species are trading strategies, the way I look at the world. Individual organisms are traders, uh, and there can be many traders following the same strategy. That's an important thing. There's a populate the population in biology, which is how many animals of a given type are there, turns into how much capital is invested in, in a given strategy which all sometimes just refer to the size of the strategy. Um, the free energy that organisms gather, the food, is money. The niche is an inefficiency because the inefficiency gives something that an agent can exploit to make money. Um, selection is capital allocation. Um, strategies that end up with lots of money invested that grow in size are successful strategies that um, are not successful, lose all their money. Genetic variation is the creation of new strategies, and the carrying capacity of a given strategy is the maximum profits that that strategy can get in a given context. Um, now, uh, Torsten already gave some examples of market strategies. I have a somewhat different set here. Liquidity demanders, which we shouldn't forget about. Fundamentalists, technical traders, prediction company, we were more or less stat-arb, although with some differences. Uh, various other things that have arb, which means arbitrage, statistical arbitrage is what we did. Market makers, derivatives dealers, the people we made our original deal with were a company called O'Connor Associates. 
They were derivatives dealers. So what did they do for a living? They sold derivatives to people, and their edge was that they were very good at pricing those derivatives, so they could sell them at a price that was favorable to them. So there are all these different groups, each specialized in their own activity. Now, a trophic web is, is, comes from the fact that if a strategy makes increased profits due to the presence of another strategy, then in some sense it's feeding on that strategy. That is, that's being, having that strategy there is good for it. The fact that the other strategy is there means that it makes more profits. And there's a test. If you want to map out a trophic web, you can say, you could, at least in a model, you can do a armchair experiment where you increase the size of strategy A, you give it more capital, you measure the, a little bit more capital, you measure the change in the returns of strategy B, what is increasing the size of that strategy, strategy A, do the returns of strategy B, and then you can reverse and do the opposite. You increase the size of strategy B and look at the returns on strategy A. So if you see that A suffers, meaning its returns drop, when, when B gets bigger and vice versa, then those strategies are competing with each other because each would prefer that the other wasn't there. If, on the other hand, you see that A benefits from B, meaning its returns go up, but B's returns go down when you increase the population of A, then you have a predator-prey relationship um, in which A is like the fox and B is like the rabbit. And finally, you could at least conceive of mutualistic relationships in which A benefits from B and B benefits from A. It's not actually obvious to me whether that actually occurs in economic settings, but I believe it does. Um, now, I wanted to comment, there was a question from somebody over in that corner, I don't know whether they're there anymore, about density dependence in economics earlier. And um, um, in particular, well, I said yes. There's density dependence when supply and demand functions are nonlinear. So if you think about this kind of system, and I'll come back to this, I'll amplify on this in a bit, as um, it's quite possible that these relationships will change as the size of strategies A and B change. That is, they're context dependent, which is what density dependence is in ecology. I would argue. It's precisely analogous to that. And it's related to the nonlinearity and the supply and demand functions. Um, all right. So now, what are examples of trophic relationships? Um, well, you can have, for example, I could prove in this paper that short-term trend followers have a predator-prey relationship with long-term trend followers. Now, this actually, uh, let's say, corrected a, a common mistake that was made. People often assume that trend following is just self-reinforcing. If you're a trend follower, the more the better. The more of us there are, the more profits we're going to make. But actually, you can show if the tr other trend followers are doing just what you're doing, well, they have market impact too. They end your market impact. They drive your profits down. It's just like taking a single agent and making them bigger. But... In contrast, if you have some, if you have long-term trend followers, what happens? Um, as, as some, let's suppose at random there is some glitch. Markets move up for whatever reason. That activates the short-term trend followers. They then set a trend. They amplify the current trend, 
And now you, you engage slightly longer-term trend followers and slightly longer-term trend followers. And if you have a population of trend followers of varying time scales, you can get a big trend going by having the snowball start rolling, but you actually need trend followers at diverse time scales. And when you investigate, you'll see that the short-term trend followers are profiting from the presence of the longer-term trend followers because they're doing what in the trade is called front-running. That is, they're getting in ahead. They're getting their trades in ahead of the other guys. And since buying tends to push the market up, uh, they buy first, they push the market up, the market keeps going up, and they, they profit because they end up buying at the lowest price. Um, similarly, you, in models, you can see that fast fundamentalists have predator-prey relationships with dumb or a slow fundamentalist. I'll talk about a, a model that has that property later. And, and trend followers and value investors together, though, have a more complicated relationship because, for instance, uh, it's a known fact that large value investors often trade quite slowly because they, they're large. And, uh, well, they trade slowly in two cents. It takes somebody like Warren Buffett. They buy positions and they hold them for five years, typically. That means they can afford to buy their way into those positions very slowly. In fact, Warren Buffett, a couple of years ago, was given a variance by the SEC from reporting his trades, which are required for mutual funds to be done quarterly, because he said it was going to take him more than nine months to work his way into that trade. He was buying 3.5% of IBM. So he was consistently buying IBM under the radar for more than nine months to the point where he had to go to the SEC and get a variance, which they gave him. And, um, and then, you know, he finally reported it. But it just shows how long these things can be. Anyway, that can trigger trends. But in contrast, or, or not in contrast, at the same time, trend followers are good for value investors because they make bubbles. And if you didn't have bubbles, you wouldn't have big excursions away from fundamental values. If prices always sit at fundamental values, then there's no opportunity for, for fundamentalists to trade. So they like it when, at least in the long run, when others drive prices away. Now, in the short run, that hurts them because that can be a long time, and fundamentalists can lose a lot of money while trend followers are running prices up. And we saw this happen in a very dramatic way in the tech bubble of the late 90s, where you know, the, the bubble went on for four or five years, and the fundamentalists were um, losing market power because money uh, flowed out of fundamentalist-based strategies into growth strategies until the crash happened in uh, 2000, or the market turned. Um, now, now, by the way, I want to give a little aside. Um, technical trading has always been a bit of a puzzle in economics. And Torsten, in his model, noted that he, he said everybody should be a fundamentalist. Well, that again goes against the empirical uh, facts in that there are a lot of firms that do technical trading. In fact, one of the things that struck me at Prediction Company, I interviewed some traders. Traders are surprisingly willing to talk about what they do and how they do it. I'd interview some guys and they'd say, I believe in fundamentals. I don't even look at you know anything about prices other than the current price level because I don't believe in any of that stuff. Other I, technical traders would tell you, I don't believe the fundamentalists know anything. All that balance sheet stuff's a bunch of crap. I just look at charts. I make my money doing that. I'm doing very well, thank you. But so the fundamentals are sort of obvious why those guys would be there and what their role is in the market. The technical traders is less obvious. So I just wanted to make an aside about that because 
I don't know the exact numbers, but I would guess there's the order of $500 billion of profits are made by technical traders. Um, so it's a, it's a big industry. Um, so I just want to say it's a form of, this is the way we view it at a prediction company, uh, state space reconstruction, um, which goes back to a paper that actually was my third paper in my career with my partner at prediction company, Norman Packard. I'm at all. Um, we wrote in 1980 that basically shows if you have a single time series from a dynamical system, it could be an ecology or it could be anything else, but some kind of deterministic dynamical system, <coughs> you can put on, put, tra apply transformations to that time series like taking the derivative or looking at lag versions of the time series, use it to reconstruct a state space, and then use the reconstruct state space to make predictions as I did in this paper in 1987, which is how you can actually use chaos to make good short-term predictions, which again is, you know, it's the other culprit that got me into this business because once I did that, every time I would talk about my work in this, some clown in the audience would always say, have you applied this to the stock market? I kid you not, I never gave a talk in which that question was not asked. And so in 1991, I got sick of the question and quit my job at Los Alamos and decided to try it. Um, now, so our view of prediction company is that technical trading rules just form a highly evolved set of signal processing filters. We actually tested them all and uh, incorporated refined versions of them, and we use them in our models. It's something that I think econometricians don't actually fully understand. Um, now, let me just make the side comment at the same time that I think most technical trading rules are of little, um, have little social welfare associated with their use. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I quit doing what I did. I felt like in 1999 I'd rather, um, you know, on my deathbed be able to say I did something that might be useful for the world than that I, you know, made ten times as much money as I could ever sensibly spend. Um, now, you should be asking by this point, where do these inefficiencies come from? If we're going to have a trophic web, we've got to have something at the bottom of that web to drive it. I mean, for the, the biological world, it's the sun, or it's chemical potential um, in the earth. Um, where, do real, where do inefficiencies come from in financial markets? Well, they come from real economic activity. Go back to the proto-world, I imagine, where you didn't have any arbitrageurs, there's going to be a lot of patterns there. And, and so those patterns are, are driving the whole ecology. Um, so, for example, liquidity demanders behaving in synchronous manner, um, diversification, which I'll say something about in a moment, um, people who are borrowing for you know, some kind of fundamental reason. Those are the kind of ineff generating inefficiencies that, that support uh, rich ecology, uh, ecology of predatory investors. Um, so, for example, portfolio rebalancing. Completely standard thing. You have a mutual fund. You, at the beginning of the year, say, our target is to have the following weights of these stocks. You go along and one of the stocks goes shooting up. Now, in dollar terms, your weight on that stock is much bigger. So what do you do? You rebalance your portfolio by selling that stock. Um, well, that actually has two consequences. One is it imparts strong correlations between stocks. And, and now the standard explanation in, in uh, neoclassical economics would be that um, it's because there's common information for stocks. Actually, U.S. stocks, for example, 50% of the variance in the prices is common. That is, it's driven by the market. Another 
20 to 30 percent is driven by the industry, and there's only about 20 percent of the movement of the stock that's actually idiosyncratic to that stock. Um, but so the standard explanation would be stocks march in, lock, march in lockstep because there's common information about the economy. I actually think the biggest effect is portfolio rebalancing. Um, but I have to say, at Prediction Company, I never knew what was driving the strategy we did, which was to hedge out all of these common movements of stocks, make bets on the idiosyncratic movement, and basically when the stock price went up, we would assume it was going to go back down. When it went down, we would assume it was going to go back up. And so we, we came up with ways of betting on that in just the right way, and uh, we made quite a nice profit from doing that. But in, in hindsight, I think for the work of people like Ramakant, who's an imperial, um, you can see that, that this port, portfolio rebalancing must be the driver for, um, uh, for Statar profits. Um, now, another comment is I think, you know, nobody unfortunately has ever constructed a trophic web. But I'm just guessing, I think most of the ecology is populated by the predators, that is, not the people doing the fundamental activity, speculators feeding off of that, at least most of the ecology in terms of who you would you know, put on the board and, and uh, track. I would guess the typical depth of the trophic, trophic web is the order of three to four. That is, if you just think about, say, the example I just gave, you have um, fundamental economic activity, you have mutual funds, and you have um, Statard funds. So there's roughly a depth three uh, movement. But at the same time, there, I think there's also a lot of cross-reactions and so on. Now, I put a star by basal species. And by the way, I had to correct my spelling. When I first wrote that down, I actually spelled it B-A-F-C-L. <laughs> and I realized I was just so used to thinking about you know, systemic risk that you know, Basel II was in. So I actually had to look up the spelling because um, it's, you know... I wrote this paper a while ago. Um, Basel species aren't quite the same as noise traders. That is, in economics papers, um, once, interestingly, starting really with Grossman and Stiglitz, people realized that you often had to put in somebody who would be the noise trader, the dummy, that the rational guys could exploit to get reasonable results about a lot of things. So the, basal spe- the noise trader in those papers is serving the role of a basal species, I don't want to call it a noise trader, though, because actually, typically, I just think that the name gives the wrong kind of impression. Um, now, let me just say something now about inefficiencies. Um, so I said we had a Stoddard fund. What did our, what did our, um, what did our predictive power look like? So this is a plot. This is one of the few things. Um, we, we became what amounted to a prop trading uh, we were independent of UBS while I was there. We didn't get sold to UBS until 2006, quite a bit after I left. But um, we were acting as a, essentially we were, trading, we were trading their money. And so we were like a prop trading group, even though we weren't part of them. Now, originally, the data we had corresponds, in this picture here, we have dates. So I have 23 years. Um, have this, the y-axis here represents the correlation of a prediction formulated by our strategy with the subsequent market movement over the next week. Okay? And so if it says 15, that means we had a 15% correlation between our prediction and what the idiosyncratic movement of that stock was over the next week. So this is a measure of how good our predictions were. And um, 
So what you can see is in this picture, we started out with 15%, which is actually incredibly good. And, and it just slowly drops over the period of the study. And actually, maybe it's worth mentioning that originally, we had only the data from about here on. We only had nine years of data. We suddenly, well, we got the budget and the resources to buy all the data going all the way back and test what we were doing in, in you know, prehistoric times. And we discovered that we would have done way better had we been around at the beginning. But the thing that really struck us uh, and that I think substantially uh, refutes the kind of things that, say, Gene Fama used to say is, you know, in the sort of stories that Kutner said and Fama supports, they talk about markets quickly adjusting to inefficiencies. Whereas here you see over a 23-year period, we were still making extremely good profits at the end of the period with it because we still had a correlation approaching 5% which is actually quite good. Now, one other con- so this is a slow decline over a 23-year period. I would not call that a quick readjustment. <laughs> now, that said, this is a strategy that's technically hard to trade, actually even logistically hard to trade, and that's probably part of what's driving this down. Um, in contrast, here's another. We, 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 div- we divided the, the blocks of our model into what we called signals based on the inputs. This was, I can tell you, the StatArb signal. Um, we had other signals like this one. Now, this signal is a bit different because it actually was not possible to formulate this signal until right about here. And after there, the surprising thing is the profits of the strategy actually grow through time. So this is a case where the market is not becoming more efficient. It's becoming less efficient. Now, that said, actually around here, this peaked, and then it went down again, and it's gotten relatively more efficient to this strategy. Um, so, now, I also want to make the point that the path to efficiency can be quite indirect. Um, one of the things I thought about a lot were order books. And if you consider an order book imbalance, at random it happens that you have a lot of buy orders and not very many sell orders in the order book at some given point in the time, then it's easy to see that all else equal, um, prices are more likely to rise and fall. So there's an inefficiency at that point. Now, how would you exploit this? Well, you'd exploit it by placing a buy order. Now, Kutner's argument was, well, what the investors do should remove the efficiency. But if you think about it, you place a buy order, what do you do? You put even more orders on the buy side of the book. You make the inefficiency even worse. Okay? So now, how do you, how do you ever get to efficiency? Well, it turns out that also widens the spread. So, because if you're placing a market order, you widen the spread, you widen the spread, that creates an opportunity for a market maker. So now the market maker steps in and market makers place orders on both sides of the book. So you do get rid of the efficiency, but it's an indirect process that involves interactions of different specialized agents. You've got to think about the ecology if you want to understand how you're getting to efficiency. Um, Now, the other thing I did in this old paper was I pointed out that the time scale for efficiency can be calculated or estimated roughly by hand. And so if you assume the arbitrageurs are good econometricians, and you assume a trading strategy with sharp ratio S, so I mentioned that before, sharp ratio is the ratio of the average return to standard deviation, typically measured on an annualized scale. So just for reference, say the S&P index, if you just park your money in a stock index, like you would if you put it in Eugene Fama's fund, you'll get a sharp ratio of around a half. If 
Okay, we, we had a sharp ratio of three, which is outstanding, although in a strategy that's much less scalable. Gene Fama probably made more money from his big fund that has billions and billions of dollars in it than we made with a sharp ratio of a half than we did with our fund, which can make about, I'm not supposed to say this, but maybe I shouldn't say how much it makes, less than Gene Fama makes, but, um, but in a very steady way, six times the sharp ratio. All right. Now, it turns out you can prove that the, the number, let's suppose you're asking the question, let's suppose I've traded for a year and I want to test what are the odds that I got where I got at random. Okay? You can show that the, it, to get sigma standard deviations of deviation from just flat trading, roughly speaking, that's given by the sharp ratio times the square root of tau, where tau is the time to trade it. Or maybe you can kind of see where that come from because it's a diffusive process. So equivalently, you have a time that goes as the ratio of the number of standard deviations you require to the sharp ratio squared. So if you require two standard deviations of significance, then and you have a sharp ratio of one, which is already very good, then it's going to take four years to detect that there's an, inefficient, an inefficiency there in the prices. Now, then you'd want to put some capital in it and go out and test trade it, so that takes another four years, and then you've got more time to raise funds, so you're talking about a decade, even with a, sharp, with a strategy with a sharp ratio of one, which is extremely good. Now, if you're talking about people like Warren Buffett or George Soros, these kind of qualitative traders have sharp ratios less than one. You also have to measure their performance relative to the S&P index, so it's how much better than a half are they, so now these time scales lengthen out to 20 years, 30 years, 50 years for the kind of performance that most of the big players have. So the time scales for efficiency are actually very long. Just look at this, it's about five to five. I'm going to find out. I'm hoping we can stay in here for a bit longer than five o'clock. Okay. Uh, just to let you know. I, I guess I was hoping since we started 15 minutes late, I got this 15 minutes. Exactly. Okay. So I'll try and wrap up in about five or 10 minutes. Brilliant. I'm going to go find out. All right. Um, <laughs> Uh, the other thing I was able to do that I think should interest ecologists was derive Lacta-Volterra equations, generalized Lacta-Volterra equations within this framework. Um, interestingly, Paul Samuelson actually wrote down at some point, he, he speculated that there might be Lacta-Volterra equations describing financial markets and, um, and you know, wrote a little bit about what that might mean, but he didn't actually derive them. Um, so I did by just from two simple assumptions. One is I assume a market impact rule. What that means is that if you invest a given number of dollars to buy or sell, that it's going to create a change in price with some proportionality constant lambda or equivalently have liquidity one over lambda because the bigger lambda is, the more liquid the market is. Um, um, or did I get that wrong? Uh, bigger, yeah, bigger lambda is the more, well, so maybe I should have said liquidity lambda, excuse me. So the, the, now, I assumed also that the reinvestment in a given strategy J with capital CJ is proportional to its historical return with some proportionality constant AJ. And from those two assumptions, you can derive these equations which say that the rate of change of capital for strategy J is, has to do with how much that strategy attracts capital, which, by the way, can do from reinvestment. If people make profits, they let their money ride. If a, if a fund makes profits, money flows into the fund. You can actually empirically validate that quite well from data on mutual funds. Um, you, you have to sum that over all the strategies, all the other strategies, and you look at this 
you look at their cross term times some, some um, coefficient, gij, which has to do with their trophic relationship, which you can calculate conceptually at least by doing the kind of experiment I, I mentioned where you look at what happens when you increase the size of one strategy, what happens to the returns. Um, in general, this is density dependent. That is, it depends on um, ci and cj. Um, but as an approximation, you can assume that it's constant and then you get quadratic equations. You get another term here having to do with the fact that strategies have friction. So more of your strategy is going to cut into your profits. And, and, and then finally, allow for the possibility that you have some strategies that for whatever crazy reason people like, like might be fundamentals. So point being, we can write down lock of Volterra equations. And as we know from the work of Volterra, um, this induces oscillations. So we should expect, generically, that we're going to see oscillations when we look at the capital of strategies, which is not what you might expect from an efficient markets approach. Now, let me also just say you can also use the invasion method. That is, if you have some specific ecology that you can write down, I illustrated this in the paper, you can then ask, is it possible for a new, a new strategy that you might think of to invade? If it, so you put that strategy in, you add it in epsilon quantity. If you compute whether or not it makes positive profits. If it makes positive profits, then you assume it's going to accumulate profits and invade. And um, so you can use, again, the same technique that people use in ecology. Um, now, since I'm running out of time, I just want to say, talk about the applications. Um, first application, which is the one that got me into thinking about this to begin with, is allometry. Because we were effectively acting as a prop trading group, all we had to do to get more trading capital was you know, go to the guys at, at O'Connor or subsequently UBS and say, hey, we think we can handle more money. Give it to us. And if we convince them that we can handle more money, they give it to us. Now, in order to do that, we had to measure our market impact. And we originally assumed that the market impact function was going to be some con convex function that as we got bigger and bigger, we, we just hit some wall where we wouldn't be able to go any further, and we would hit that wall very fast in a nonlinear way. In fact, when we measured it and wrote a report in 1996 doing that, we saw the opposite. And let me just say that if you look at profits up to a trading strategy as a function of the trading capital, what you see is the profits go up initially. Why? Because if you have a given return and you can invest twice as much, you're going to make twice as much money. So this is a linear regime. Um, or, or this is the regime. If returns were constant, you would just, uh, you would just be going up linearly there. But then as you get bigger and bigger, your returns start to go down, and finally you reach a point with the two effects balance, and now you're at the carrying capacity of your strategy, and that's the point you would like to be at. Although if you're estimating, in a, in a, if you're properly cautious, you're going to set yourself back here somewhere because you'd much rather be on this side than that side of the carrying capacity of your strategy. Now, um, now, I think one of the puzzles in markets, as I said, is that uh, the carrying capacities are much higher than I would have thought. Because we knew, as StatArb people, that there were other traders out there doing things that were similar to us, and that ought, we thought, be dramatically cutting in to our profits. Um, now, it turns out it was. We discovered that uh, in, uh, there's a firm, De Shaw, that was doing this even before we were doing it, and um, StatArb. And in 1998, they made a deal with Bank of America 
Bank of America had some problems, and as a result, they had to shut their trading down. And um, so during the period where their trading was shut down, our, our P&L, our profit and loss curve, had about double the slope that it did under normal times. We did twice as well as normal, I think, because they weren't in the market. And then, sure enough, when they got their trading up and running again, the slope went back to where it had been before. So I think carrying crowding is a, is a big effect. Um, this was dramatically illustrated in the quant meltdown of August 2007, where my colleagues at the prediction company called me up in great anxiety, saying, Doan, do you have any idea what's going on in the market? Because even though the S&P index is not doing anything, every day we're losing on 95% of the positions where we're long, the stock goes down. 95% of the positions where the stock is short, the price goes up. It's been happening for several days now. What the hell is going on? And well, it turned out that stat arbs, for various reasons, having to do with the crisis and the anxiety of, I, I've now been told somebody believes Goldman Sachs was the one who set the, the, the snowball rolling. Um, were liquidating for reasons unrelated to the profitability of Statart. And that caused a meltdown that caused 80% of the Statart firms to go out of business. Uh, prediction company didn't go out of business, although they, they were hit by the fact that UBS was very nervous and made them ramp down in the middle, despite the fact that they told them that they shouldn't do that. Anyway, um, let me just mention something to connect with Michelle's talk. You were talking about you know the central ideas in ecology. Well. Uh, like exponential growth. That happens here when you're in this domain over here. In, in general, though, you get logistic growth because if you're, you're invading, your strategy is invading, and you're ramping it up, as we were in the 90s with doing Statar, you, you move through this curve here, and as you do this, your returns are dropping, and so as your returns are dropping, the rate of growth is dropping, and so you get, you get logistic growth. Uh, you get logistic growth as you approach the carrying capacity. You also commented that carrying capacities are context-dependent. It's a bit of a squirrely thing. Same is true here. The carrying capacity is density-dependent. It depends on the other strategies in the ecology. And depending on who else is out there, the carrying capacity of your strategy can go up or down. Now, um, I'm going to just skip that right now. So I want to get to the applications. What causes excess volatility? Now, the neoclassical explanation is that when more news arrives, prices fluctuate more. Go back and think about that quote from Kutner. Prices are going to move more if more news comes in, because all markets are doing under the neoclassical view is responding to news. Now, you can ask what fraction of volatility is actually caused by this. And there's a study by Larry Summers and colleagues, Cutler, Paterba, and Summers, from a 1989 paper. Um, what they did was to take the largest moves in the S&P index from 1946 to 1987, they went to the library, got the you know, microfilm of the New York Times on that day. They looked in the financial section to see what the explanation was. They copied it into a little box. They noted the size of the move. They ranked the moves in order. They took the top 100 moves. And um, so we show them here. And then they labeled the moves subjectively based on whether they thought it was news or not. And what you see is the first thing that hits you is the top four moves are not, were not classified as news. The ones that were classified as news or in red here are things like Eisenhower suffers heart attack. That's real news. It's information flowing in the market from outside. Um, but something like 
Worry over dollar decline, well, I was worried every day I worked at a prediction company. I'm really glad I'm not doing it anymore for that reason. If, you're, if, you're, if your stock investors are not worried, you should fire them. Um, so that, that's just a daily occurrence. Um, um, so, you, you, But when you look, you see there's a lot of emotional stuff in these. A lot of it's internal market stuff, like worry over dollar decline. And you also see the decline of journalism. September 3rd, 1946, New York Times actually had the courage to say no basic reason. <laughs> they will never do that again. Yeah. Um, so now let me just say, so what is this ecological approach good for? Well, it provides an explanation of what's causing this excess volatility because two-thirds of the events, according to Cutler, Paterba, and Summers, are not driven by external news. There's a paper by Bouchot matching up news feeds against price changes on a much faster scale that comes up with a much lower figure, a much smaller fraction relating to news. Um, now, explanation one is that you have an ecology with a fluctuating population of trend followers and value investors, and there's a long history of that now, going back to the Santa Fe Institute stock market model that Torsten mentioned. Um, actually, several people in the audience, as you can see, were involved in that. Um, uh, and so this is one clear reason. I think up until recently it was really the only reason that was around, um, at least the only plausible explanation I heard. Now, we've come up with another reason, which is that you have heterogeneous leveraged value investors. We have a paper on this that actually has a long history involving the idea of um, modeling the leverage cycle, which is an idea originally due to John Genicopoulos. Uh Now, I'm going to fly through that paper because I'm out of time, just to say that in that model, the heterogeneity is... We have multiple value investors. They have heterogeneity in their aggression. That is, some are more optimistic and more aggressive in the way they trade. Over time, funds flow to those guys. They generate, um, well, this model generates excess volatility, and it generates heavy tails. I can come back and say more about it in the, in the question session, but we can see as we change the leverage limit from 1 up to 10 that we get heavy tails entering. The heavy tails look roughly like the heavy tails in a real financial market. And so, um, so in that month, that's another source of heavy tail behavior. And it actually roughly reproduces the profile of volatility peaks and defaults. Now, I just want to say a little bit about empirical studies and then close with a policy uh, vision. Um, there have been a few empirical studies, but they're very limited. For example, um, Lilo et al. have a study here where they got data where they had brokerage codes and you can see they actually classify the strategies that they had by trying to back out um, what they actually originally actually had identifiers and the strategies themselves. That's a long story. But anyway, they could classify some uh, trading as having positive correlation to price, others with negative correlation to price, sorts into very clear groups. Um, there is now a... a a study by Kirilenko et al. from 2011 of the flash crash where Andrei Kirilenko made use of data he had from the CFTC, uh, which is the agency that regulates futures trading. And here you can see his maps of how the, the uh, trading footprint of different types of traders, because he had identifiers, and this was trading through time, um, through the days around the flash crash. Now, let me just comment, well, and then let me just comment, let me make a basic comment here. 
The big problem with what I'm telling you about is a lack of empirical studies. Why is there a lack of empirical studies? Because there's a lack of data sets that have trait identifiers in them. What does that mean? So there are many ecologists in the room. Imagine that for some reason uh, Linnaeus had never lived. So we had no taxonomy of organisms. And somehow the way they looked wasn't sufficient to tell us what they were, or the data you were able to collect didn't tell you about what they were. So all you could say is an organism ate another organism. And that's the data you had to base ecology on. Well, you wouldn't have much of a theory of ecology. And that's where we are in FNAMS. Because all we can see is somebody traded with somebody else in a typical data set. There are very few data sets where you actually have identifiers that tell you who was making the trades. If you can see that, then you can begin to classify them, as Kirilenko is starting to do here. And then you can start to make more interesting statements about how the, how the ecology is changing through time and what its effects are. This is a study that um, I've been working on with uh, Pedro Machado and a graduate student, uh, where we actually have, to, and, and actually a group of other collaborators, we have some data from the Taiwan Stock Exchange through the 90s and early 2000s, where we do have detailed identifiers. We actually have a name associated with each trade, and or at least a code signifying a name, and an, a code signifying an account. Um, we've made some progress towards analyzing this. Let me just say it's a very difficult data set to work with, uh, there's also something about this data set. I, the, the last graduate student I had that worked on this, um, first there was a flood. He was an American. There was a flood in Colorado. He returned home to help his family deal with the flood. Um, uh, then he got deported by the, the UK um, government, so he wasn't able to come back into the country. And, um, and then he got his girlfriend pregnant, and so there went our study. Um, Okay, I'm going to not even show those. I'm just going to get on my uh, final um, slides here. So what, what, what use is all this stuff? Why do I think this is so important? Well, an agency like the OFR, or I guess now it's the FCA, um, have, they have access to counter, counterparty trade identifiers. And if you had that and you had some historical data, you can now create a taxonomy because you can see who trades like whom. You can put them in bins, so now you have species. And you can then monitor, if you're them, the population of those strategies because they have the ability in real time or at least fairly quickly to look at their trades and update and look at estimate their positions and see what the ecology, what is the ecology actually doing? Just as say, you know, some ecologists would model would, would monitor a fish population if there was an question about the environmental health of a given lake or ocean. Um, and then you could do something, first of all, I think just knowing that would already give you a lot of early warning indicators. And secondly, um, you could use something like an agent-based model that uh, I've been working on with others like Julia to assess systemic risk and study policies to contain it. Um, uh, I think it would be a very useful thing. Um, let me just conclude by saying, you know, economic crises routinely cost us trillions of euro. Uh, notice my European orientation now. Um, and I just think it's a bit crazy. I noticed there was somebody here from the, the UK Antarctic study something. Um, you know, it's worth noting, at least in the US, we spend more on polar research than we spend on economic research. Um, which is, I mean, I'm all for polar research, but it's odd, given that, um, you know, when the economy just burps, 
we get we lose a trillion dollars. So, um, and you know, uh, not to mention what's happening in Europe. Um, so, I think ecological approaches could play an important role in doing this kind of thing. But in order to do that, as I've argued here, the key action in both the I would argue the tech bubble, 2000, and in the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, is coming from ecological imbalances having to do in one case to having an excess of trend following, in the other case to an excess of leverage. And, um, and I think that it's essential that we think in, um, in ecological terms if we're going to get a handle on, on actually addressing those kind of trends. Thanks. George is a perfect person to comment. <laughs> he, he's an ecologist who's also worked in markets. So, yeah. so grass is always greener. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there are some fundamental assumptions that ecologists seem to abandon in order to make their yeah. as well. But I'm just curious, what do you think are the primary assumptions you know, that economists need to well, I think it's, it's abandoning efficiency. That is, it's, it's not that markets aren't pretty efficient, but I think it should be okay to have a theory in which you say, actually, we know they aren't fully efficient, yeah. and, and that we should get to the bottom of the sources driving those inefficiencies, map, you know, either map out empirically or even think about conceptually what that trophic tree is and how it works. And a lot of this can actually, there's a lot more that could be done theoretically as well, either by running more agent-based models, which, by the way, is where the basic thing originally came from, if that didn't come through, um, but e- either by doing that or just by doing you know, calculations. You, I, I was able to calculate some things by hand. A better mathematician could do all that a lot better. But it depends on saying, okay, who is it that's pumping the money into the economy? Who is preying on them? And, and how do those interactions work? And, and how do those, those, those agents play on the residuals? And, and, and as new strategies moved, I mean, I would imagine that, that, you know, another story about the crisis is that it was innovation. Financial innovation drove the crisis. Well, that's like injecting a new strategy. If we had a model of the ecology, we could put the new innovation into the ecology and see whether it invaded and see whether it destabilized things or not. We could study questions like we could label all the strategies based on destabilizing, not destabilizing. So, for example, paper that we're, you know, I think it's now known that bank, the typical bank leverage strategy is destabilizing. I should have put this in my talk. I mean, just think about it. If a bank has a leverage target, what does that mean? It means that if um, prices go down, leverage goes up, the bank sells. So the bank's selling into a falling market. The reverse is true when the prices go up. So it means they're basically always destabilizing. There has to be somebody else trading with them in order to preserve stability in the market. That's, I was actually intrigued by Tomaso's, you know, what he was doing, maybe another example of that. Um, so we need to think about that. We need to make sure we have enough of the stabilizing traders around. We have too many destabilizing traders. Little warning lights should be flashing and saying, wait a minute. It's okay to have some. We need them for, you know, like we need banks to be, they need to have leverage targets of some form. Maybe we can make better. So I'm, I'm giving you a long answer, but. Um, no, it's a good one. But, and so, but you also raised another issue, which is stability. Right. To what extent do you think stability is a reality in these systems? Is, is stability what? Is real in these systems. And what measurements have been made to actually indicate that it's one way or the other? Yeah. 
So my, that's, uh, thank you for that question. Um, my view is that uh, markets are both stable and unstable, even when they're functioning well, they're both stable and unstable at the same time in a way that you appreciate because you've done chaotic dynamics, but they're locally unstable in the sense that um, they're not going to stay where they are. They're moving somewhere else, and their factors driving them there, as in a chaotic attractor. But they typically, some kind of global instability, they're not going to just blow off to infinity. And we see this in our agent-based models. We can have... We, we can have real stability where the market goes to a fixed point. We can have local instabilities but on a chaotic attractor that's globally stable or we can just have global instabilities where the market just blows up. Now, of course, markets are highly non-stationary, so the whole notion that attractors a slippery one to begin with. And, and, and I think you have to worry about significant changes in the dynamics that cause the instabilities to get a lot bigger than they were, even if they're not absolutely unstable. I mean, ultimately, there are cushions out of the boundaries that keep pushing you back. We need some new language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, either one. Uh, one of my favorite book titles is Where Are the Customers' Yachts? And in a, in a lot of financial mathematics and discussion of market stability, we, we, we tend to see the customers in the real economy sort of banished to the periphery, partly because it's kind of conceptually interesting to look at all the fancy trading stuff that, 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 that's going on. But I think one of the, the big conceptual shifts that we need to make as we think about financial stability is we need to remember that the financial system is actually there to serve the real economy. Yeah. And the stability that matters is not stability of the financial system, but stability of the real economy, or, or, or whatever social benefits the real economy is not even quite as simpler stability. I think your crisis model has the great advantage of incorporating customers, but I think it's kind of important that we remind people that in the end this is meant to be about real customers who aren't noise traders, and I agree yeah. with you not liking that term. Yeah. So, and I thank you for the plug for crisis. I mean, we are trying to build a comprehensive agent-based model that allows us to think about you know, who are the winners and losers from policy changes. I, so I completely agree. Jump here. There is literature in, uh, in standard economics. Maybe that's a better. Which you're a critical of, I understand. But it's, I think it's, it does quite a bit what you suggested to be done. And it comes under the title of um, limits arbitrage. Yeah. Um, but why is that not, to some extent, the answer to some of your concerns? So this literature does introduce various frictions. People you know, cannot do all the things they wish to do. And it opens the door for specialized guys who can arbitrage various bits of the system. Not everything, but yeah. some guys know about inefficiencies there. They go there, they play games, they remove some of them and all of them. And so there are more, yeah. more papers along those lines. Yeah. No, I, 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 I mean, I encourage that, that line. I guess there, there's sort of, and, and I think that's a good, good trend in economics, uh, financial economics in particular. But... But um, I, I think the difference is, I do sense often in those papers that they're putting their hands behind their back by carrying along all the baggage of having to compute equilibria and, um, and in the end having static equilibrium as the outcome when really, well, if you just 
abandon certain. I mean, they've, they've, they're, they're building on the original framework by going, following the algorithm of, you know, modify the, relax the assumptions one by one. Typically in these papers, I mean, roughly speaking, that's been the algorithm. Or the, 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 I would say the research program for economics since Errol and Debrou is let's take the original model, let's put in something like informational asymmetry, institutional constraint, let's see what it does, and, and then you can investigate these kind of things. And I agree. I mean, I did list it at the beginning as, as the competing approach. But I just often feel like too often those models are two-period models in which you have to go to a lot of work to analytically calculate all this stuff. So it's partly a set of other things that, that are, I would argue, um, red herrings in a way about what you're trying to get at. So I don't want to be too critical of that work because I think, I think it has contributed a lot. Um, Grossman Stiglitz being one of the sort of early papers that got that going by showing, you know, clarifying the inherent inherent problem in the original naive view of efficiency. So I, I don't disagree with you really, and I'm sorry if I came across excessively negative on that point. Um, Chris. Both briefly in this talk and more extensively in your work with Jonathan Coppolis and others, the topic of leverage has been emphasized and with the implication at least that regulators ought to care more about regulating leverage than they do. But as you also pointed out, leverage is itself influenced by asset prices in a way that interest rates, for example, are not. So how do we have it both ways. Can we regulate? Can we target leverage in, in a way that's, uh, that, that's basically stabilizing rather than destabilizing? So, so I, I think for, I think regulators are pretty aware about leverage and 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 you know are quite eager. The regulators are quite eager to figure out the right ways to keep it under control. They're having debates about exactly how do we do it? Do we do it through? Um, uh, um, uh, just leverage, which is pretty crude, or do we use um, uh, risk-weighted capital constraints? I mean, what, what, do we, what do we do? So there's a lot of debate now. But the question you raise is one we're actively working on of what is the right prescription at the end of the day for getting the, the, the best compromise. Because what you would like is to get the minimum of volatility with the most leverage, because if you could if you could run the world in a nice stable way and still use leverage, that's good. Because then you'd have um, you know leverage makes the economy run. And in a sense, the crisis was not a crisis about too much leverage; it's about too little leverage. Once the liquidity freeze happened, um, leverage came shooting down, and then fundamental uh, investors couldn't borrow anymore. Um, so I think people are very much trying to figure out what is what is the best way to do it. Uh, it has to be simple, and there's a lot of constraints. But it's, it's at this point, I think, an open question. Um, you had your hand up, and then Alan. Um, sorry, I'm slightly scared to ask this. It's a tremendously naive question, probably. But you like and come from an ecologist. You're an ecologist, yeah. so I want naive questions from so ecologists. So you like the, um, the inefficiencies in the market to be like the, the sunlight, the resource base on which this huge kind of inverse pyramid of finance is, is based upon. And I, I just wasn't clear in my head, where does that inefficiency come from and who, who's losing out? Because no new wealth is being created, nothing's being manufactured. It's like a huge game of pass the parcel with the money going around. 
So someone's losing out, and, and who is that, and what would they have done with that money? Well, so first you have to be careful. It's not always a zero-sum game. And, and you know, oftentimes both sides win or both sides lose. Um, so that's, that's a slippery thing, and it's, you have to kind of look at it on a case-by-case basis to what extent is it a zero-sum game. Um, now, in principle, so the, the classic example someone might give of why you need these arbitrageurs is, say, let's say you're a farmer and you're worried about the price of the crop, but you need to borrow the money to buy the, buy the seeds and equipment you know, a year ahead. If, if you know, the price ends up being too low, you're going to go out of business. So you make a deal with an arbitrageur who now takes your risk, guarantees a price for you, but must be planning on average on making a profit because they're going to eat your risk but on average make a profit by doing so. So that should be, it's a win-win situation, which is what most of economics is about. Now, I mean, it's not always win-win. And, and, and I think a lot of you know, comments about, say, the derivatives market, that's, that would be a derivative that I was just talking about. It's the proper use of a derivative. Derivatives are all too often used to make bets and, you know, get things off the balance sheet and hide stuff. So that's the bad side of derivatives. But, but I just use that as an example of why you need the financial system to be there. Alan. Yeah, three quick uh, questions for you. The first is that the first person to introduce the efficient markets hypothesis was Bachelier, mm-hmm. his hypothesis. And straight away, when he wrote his thesis, the guy who wrote the report on his thesis, Poincaré, said, wait a minute, this is not what happens. The people, in fact, don't take information, then act on it, it gets out into the system, and that's how prices reflect all the information. People watch each other. But as soon as you have that, your idea of a random walk will be destroyed. So very early on, there was a sort of flaw. So just like... You said at some point Kutner and several were cited, but he had because Well, sure. I, I mean, um, so I agree with you, Alan. But let me just say, I, I'm not against the efficient markets hypothesis. There are cases where it works really well. Like, if you want to price an option, it's a really good idea. And, okay, you can then ask about, well, the original option paper, Black and Scholes, assumes a Gaussian distribution. You can say, well, that, but that's not right. And, in fact... That gets back to the key. This is a different way to answer your question, Jean-Pierre, because you can say, all right, why, are, why is the Black-Scholes formula wrong? Black-Scholes formula wrong, and what O'Connor and Associates did for a living is because of the heavy tails and clustered volatility in the price series. Now I say, where are those coming from? They're coming from inherent inefficiencies that are things like ecologies that are swishing around you know, that, that have fluctuating populations and the problem is, which come naturally out of my lack of Volterra equations, they don't come naturally out of the kind of the models that you're talking about. Now, maybe you could get them somehow, but it's just, I think it's a bit the, um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard way to get there. And so it's not that I'm saying these other guys shouldn't keep doing what they're doing. In a sense, I'm saying they should just let me in and let me do what I'm doing, which I can tell you when you submit a paper, I mean, just look at my Market Force Ecology and Evolution paper. I submitted it actually to a special issue of GBO, which Thomas Lux was supervising. Um, I got creamed by the referee. I now know what it is, I won't say. I got forced to put half the paper, throw away half the paper. And this is a open-minded, liberal kind of heterodox journal. 
I ran into Giovanni Dozzi then in 2002, and he said, well, what happened to that paper of yours, Market Force Ecology and Evolution? I really liked it. So, well, not going to get published. So, well, just... I'm going to just put it in my journal. So he was editor-in-chief. He just published it. <laughs> but uh, that was the first of a long set of uh, setbacks in getting things published that don't follow this standard template that economists have been taught. So I'm, 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 I'm agreeing but disagreeing a little bit. The part in which I'm, I'm more towards Jean-Pierre is I actually think market efficiency in some circumstances is a great hypothesis, and I'm all in favor of it. It's just that for other purposes, you really have to care about the second order part. It might be small, but it still has huge significance. My two other very, yeah. very quick questions there are um, everybody keeps talking about uh, what these people in the market, what's happening, but you ask yourself what they're doing, and the typical response is what you just said. Well, they're just the intermediaries between, in the end, the real sector and... Uh, the people who want to lend money. And yet, Adair Turner's figures suggest that what banks do is roughly 10% of their business is that. And the other 90% is producing derivatives, shuffling stuff around, and has nothing to do with the real sector at all. And last, last remark is your quote, your quote from Friedman. And, yeah. you know, who, who are these guys who arbitrage? We have these no-trade theorems, remember? Yeah. And no-trade, what you say to people, well, but there's huge amounts of trade going on. And they say, oh, well, that's because people are just arbitraging away the little opportunities. And you say, but wait a minute, the little opportunities aren't there. And they say, no, no, that's just because all these guys arbitrage them away. But you say there's something sort of paradoxical in in what you're just telling me. And why, when they do arbitrage, will it arbitrage it back to an equilibrium instead of perturbing the system further? Well, if there, you know, if you can, I think, and that's part of what you would see in a lot of models. Like, actually, we've been building on your old model, you're in Danielson's model. And, um, um, you know, if, if you assume a lot of rationality, you can get the agents to navigate to a fixed point. But little deviations from rationality can send them far away from that fixed point. Um, I just wanted to amplify your comment, which I, I think it's good to emphasize. When I said most of the ecology is populated by predators, as he said, there's a big pyramid of them that are supported by these fundamental things. Um, you know, world currency trading is something like 50 times world GDP. So that's, that's giving you a clue about how big, how big this pyramid is. You know, in ecology, it's like I, I want to see one of these reefs where you have the giant sharks and so on because, you know, you have a whole set of predators around the reef because they haven't been, all the big fish haven't been fished out. But we don't have people fishing the big fish in these kind of ecologies, and so we still have all those big fish there. And they, they take up most of the mass. But that's just nominal value. That's not the real mass of the trade. Sure, but I, I agree with Alan that there's a puzzlingly large amount. Yeah, of, yeah. There was a question from back there. Yeah, I have a less naive version of Tom's question. Uh, who was the ecologist, I'm a mathematician. Is it ethical to make a riskless profit? Is it ethical to do what? Make a riskless profit. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you, I could imagine things where you would make a riskless profit and make everybody happy. I, I don't think it's the nature of the, the um, fluctuations in your profit stream that matters for ethicalness. I think it's whether you're performing a useful economic function. Okay, to seek to make a riskless profit. What? Is it ethical to seek to make a risk profit? 
Well, I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with the end effect of the trading. Can I explain my answer? Sure. Opening line of back controls, because it should not be possible to make Christmas profit. If you go back to scholastic analysis of finance, it's a more emphatic statement. A riskless profit is a shameful game. That came out of London about 1200. And what I think is interesting, or I'm interested in as a mathematician, is the change in how we present finance from a time up until about 1850 where it was definitely immoral to seek to make a riskless profit. You can make a profit, but it has to carry risk. That was scholastic analysis. And now it's changed, and now we have the sort of problems that Lord May presented yesterday. I think this is a I don't know. To me, it seems as a sort of a Protestant, um, you know, if I'm going to gain something, I've got to suffer to get there. Uh, flavor to it. Oh, but okay. Um, let me just comment. Actually, I'm, I know somebody, for example, who has a strategy that does uh, passive, uh, automated market making. It makes what amounts to a riskless profit. It has a sharp ratio of 25 or 30 or something like that. But it makes very small daily profits. And what does it do? It just narrows the spread. When the spread gets too large, no destabilizing effects. Um, I, I don't. Codes. What? Test codes. What? Test codes. Ta- tax codes? Test code or sales risk. That's what they're doing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's nearly risk is profit. You buy bread yeah. for 10 pence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's immoral. Yeah. But let's, let's do another topic. You had, a, you had your hand up. I just wanted to ask you whether you ask where the money's coming from, whether it's financed by public investors, pension holders, shareholders in banks who don't use the right benchmark, and they're constantly investing in funds, which 85% of money under management does worse than the index. So there's a whole lot of money going in to pay management fees for the zero success. Well, well, you're right. I mean, most, most of the financial market, you know, a large fraction of participants are not providing any value that I can discern. So, and, and people are quite irrational in the way they invest, too. So, I mean, you can see this in the, in the data quite clearly. What does that say about public policy? Um, well, I think I'm worried that what I might say might come off across as patronizing, but I think that we need to protect people. Uh, I'm not so worried about people paying a little, you know, paying a stock commission as long as it's reasonable to perform roughly like the index. But, um, but... But I don't know. That's, that's sort of out of my department, to be honest. Well, I mean, you're putting policy decisions at the end, and surely just to explain to people yeah. that it is a negative sum activity. Yeah. Yeah. That there's transaction costs, and that on average investors are better than poorer. I completely agree. Maybe, maybe if we had more, well, of course, I don't know if this is a good example. Maybe, like smoking, you know, you put the warning on the package. That warning should at least be there. The warning probably doesn't have a huge effect in deterring people. And, you know, maybe we just need to learn to herd better so that people learn the right purchasing habits in school. I don't know. Question then, yeah, go ahead, you first. And actually to follow up on that analogy, the the studies of the decline in tobacco consumption show that it's partly a campaigning and warning and such effects, and it's partly a price effect. You make it more expensive and people smoke less. Well, it's significantly a peer effect. If your friends don't smoke, you don't smoke. Yeah. So, 
So is, is, there, a, is there a financial penalty if you suppose? For investing stupidly? <laughs> You're already paying the penalty. Just maybe it should go to the public instead of the company. Question? The question is about the, uh, the space of possible, uh, you know, metastable states. I think you've talked largely about the systems where there's a rather small number of metastable states. Is there any particular reason for that, or is in fact that not really what you were saying correctly anyway? I mean, what, why can't you have a much larger cloud of metastable states? Oh, I think you have a. I, yeah. Just to clarify, I, yeah. I think, and that maybe goes a little bit back to Jean Pierre's comment. Yeah. I mean, I have another paper I could have talked about where we just. Uh, have agents who are playing randomly constructed games where they're competing with each other using learning algorithms. What do we see in that paper? We see, first of all, that the agents, well, in some circumstances they settle into fixed points. In other circumstances they go to chaotic attractors. When they go to the chaotic attractors, and, and there's a very clear thing having to do with the zero-sumness of the game and the way they go about their learning algorithm that determines whether they're on a chaotic attractor or whether they go to a fixed point. But now once they go to the chaotic attractor, what happens? Well, they have, they have heavy-tailed returns in their profits and losses. They show clustered volatility. There's periods where they make big returns, periods where they make low returns. It's completely generic, too. We're just making up games at random. So that goes back to it's sort of a matter of the view that's layered on top of the stuff. It's not that per se, it's just that admitting the idea that once you, as George was bringing up, that you think about, well, what's going on out there is we're on some high-dimensional chaotic attractor where it's not, it's not a fixed point, typically, and um, where we have to think about both local and global instability and think about volatility as being endogenously generated by the dynamics on that attractor, which has to do with the population dynamics of the ecology and the evolutionary pressures that are changing that population dynamics. It's, it's, it's just a different worldview to come at it, even if I agree that, you know, and let me just give the analogy I, I like to make. I like to think that, to use Chris Sims' words, we know that the real world is sitting somewhere in the wilderness of bounded rationality. Now, what standard economics, as you put it, has been doing is tunneling into that wilderness from a particular direction. You start with perfect rationality, and you dig the tunnel in this way, and you try and get more towards the real world of bounded rationality. Now, what I've been arguing, like I had papers on limit order books, so I said, let's just assume agents are all dumb. They just flip coins to decide when to place their orders. So I view that as digging the tunnel in from the other direction. In fact, in Bali, Balinese for, for centuries, would dig tunnels where they'd start at both sides and actually get the tunnels to join in the middle and aside. But um, my view is, well, we need to find out. Let's, you know, 99% of economists are tunneling in from one direction. Maybe a few percent of us ought to tunnel in from the other direction because we're going to hit, we're going to find useful things by tunneling in from that direction that those other guys are going to have a harder time seeing because they're just, you know, different strengths and weaknesses of the toolkit and the conceptual ideas that are driving the toolkit. Doug, I think that's yeah. a great place to finish, actually. That's uh, really fantastic. So, great summary of your, your worldview, I think. Uh, so, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.